Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. And welcome to the newly merged Commonwealth Club World Affairs of California. My name is Mary Cranston. I'm the chair emeritus of the law firm of Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. And I'm a past chair of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors. And I apologize for my voice, but I'll carry on. It's now my great pleasure to introduce our guests. Bob Sutton and Huggy Rao are the co-authors of The Friction Project, How Smart Leaders Make the Right Things Easier and the Wrong Things Harder. Bob is an organizational psychologist and professor of management science and engineering at the Stanford Engineering School. And Huggy is the Atoll McBean Professor of Organizational Behavior at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Bob and Huggy, welcome. Thank you. And so let me just start by saying what a personal pleasure it is for me to moderate this session tonight. I've known Bob and Huggy for many years. They're Stanford legends, uh, known for, both for their brilliance and for their off-the-chart sense of humor. Students really like funny professors, so they're popular. And businessmen and women have benefited from their insightful work over many years on, on workplace topics uh, of, uh, of great width and, and span. And so many people are looking forward to this new book. In all of Bob and Huggy's collaborations, um, they usually pick a topic we all deal with. And then through the depth of their research, their global exploration, exploration of examples, and their application of wisdom and humanity, they come up with new insights that really change your thinking about the problem. And that certainly happened for me as I read this book. And uh, we will not have time to get all the pearls in the book onto the table tonight. So if you deal with this in your daily life, and we probably all do, you got to read this book. Um, so let me start by asking Bob and Huggy to give us a high-level summary of what this oh, is God. all about so that we can all get well, in the same plane. Well, well um, to give you, I think the title sort of says it from from our perspective, um, the best leaders and by leaders, we mean people at, um, at all different levels of an organization, everybody from CEOs to my favorite boss in the book, who is actually a manager at the Department of Motor Vehicles, believe it or not, who's my favorite manager, and uh, that uh, that the best leaders see themselves as um, being aware of what should be difficult and what should be easy in organizations, and they engage in personal leadership behavior and also make a whole bunch of organizational design decisions to reach those goals. So, uh, so our perspective is it's, it's easy to say and hard to do. The best leaders make the right things easier and the wrong things harder. So that's the headline. Good. And Huggy, what would you add to that? Um, I think Bob's given an excellent summary. I do mischievously want to interject that we originally thought of uh, a different title for the book yeah. instead of The Friction Project. We actually wanted to call it The Shit Fixers. <laughs> and did Stanford tell you that wasn't going to happen? No, no, no. It was actually, actually, Stanford's fine if we swear. It, it, it's, 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 uh, they are. We have academic freedom. But, uh, but, but there's a whole bunch of problems with Amazon. And also, people, we had a little uh, web TV show at Stanford. And uh, people kept, they weren't allowed to be in a show called The Shit Fixers. So that was another problem. You are, you are the author of The No Asshole. Yes, I, I know. But anyhow, but I, also two books with swearing in the title, I think was enough for me in a life. Okay. I think our simple idea behind the book is time uh, poverty is the most invisible thing in organizations. People just have 24 hours to work, to lead a productive life. And... 
virtually every employee in a modern organization suffers from time poverty. And that was really what led us into all of this. And I just want to give uh, you, Mary, and the audience two quick sort of responses that are kind of two bookends that showcase the problem of time poverty. In When we were teaching executives in one of the Stanford programs, we asked an executive, hey, where do you work? And the guy looked at us with a glint in his eye, and he says, I work in a frustration factory. And, you know, you think, my God. And then there was another young woman, I can never forget her. She told us that I get exhausted after doing inconsequential work in my company. And when I go home, all I've got left are the scraps of myself for me and my family. And we just thought that was plain wrong. And that's why we went into this adventure into friction. What do you say, Bob? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's why I started particular precipitating event that was so horrible that you said we're going to start today. No, I don't think we think that way. I think things go gradually, but uh, but I think since uh, you were a member of the Stanford Board of Overseers, as I recall, Mary, I think it's worth mentioning our employees. So we have 70 years between us, something like that at Stanford. So um, there was a, and this is the first paragraph of the book, there was somebody who was kind of number three or number four at Stanford during the if we'll remember the depths of the pandemic, when we many of us were living too much time on Zoom. So this particular administrator sent us a 1,266-word email with a 7,500-word attachment. I'm not exaggerating um, because we had a fact check. In fact, a lawyer checked to make sure he made us send the original email to him and to spend a Saturday um, brainstorming about the new door school on Zoom. And uh, And I did write her boss and say, this could have been half the length at least. And if you do, the, this was sent to 2,000 Stanford faculty members. And if you do the math, that's an example of somebody who isn't aware of what we call the cone of friction. We all have, have uh, in fact, Ferry Claybine is here, came up mm. with the, the phrase, the cone of friction. So right. stealing it from him um, with the, with the um, cone of friction idea. And she just wasn't thinking about the impact of her behavior on some 2,500 Stanford faculty members. Yeah. So that, 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 there were many other events. Another thing that I would also add, and I'm curious what Huggy says, is that the book that we wrote before in 2014 was Scaling Up Excellence. And there were all these large organizations, uh, Google, Facebook, Salesforce, that uh, their leaders wanted them to scale, baby scale, and they did. And then they end up with uh, a lot of red tape they have to untangle. So those were some yeah. of the things that got us going. That was, a more, that was a more rational part. Well, one of the things that strikes you about the book is the breadth of your contacts. It's global, companies you're able to access. How did you get this done and who helped you? Ooh. What do you think, Huggy? I think uh, in uh, many ways uh, we are co-authors, but, uh, you know, it's certainly on the title, but it was a large village of people who helped us. I mean, uh, you know, uh, people in the behavioral lab who allowed us to do experiments, PhD students who helped us with research, companies that gave access to, uh, you know, to write cases, uh, and executives who kind of challenged us. Uh, in fact, um, one of the our favorite executives, Tuan, uh, from Uber, from a city of Uber, we asked him a simple question, you know, hey, how do you know there's a lot of bad friction in your company? 
And this is an engineer, a very sophisticated engineer. He looks at us, smiles, and says, I just look at the sleep debt of my employees. If they're not all sleeping, <laughs> we have a lot of bad friction in the company. And it tells you how, as you were mentioning a little while ago, how insidious the problem of bad friction is in companies. Yeah, so, and I, I would just also, so we have the privilege of uh, teaching uh, really, really smart and motivated students. Yes. And uh, so we taught a lot of classes in the friction. Um, I ran a friction podcast through uh, the Stanford Technology Ventures Program for a year. And one person who actually may be here, there's an interesting person named Rebecca Hines who actually started as our research assistant when she was an undergraduate in management science and engineering, uh, which your daughter also has a couple of degrees from too, um, Susie. And, uh, and eventually she got a master's degree and she got a PhD and now she won, runs the work innovation lab at Asana. And somewhere towards the end of the book project, we did a project with her where it was a meeting reset where we helped people analyze and uh, eliminate bad meetings and shorten them. So that's somebody who we've been working with on ideas in the book for at least seven or eight years. So there's some people who, uh, who've helped at every stage. She's one of them. Yeah. You know, as, as you've looked at this for a while, what at the end of the day is the root cause of all this kludge in corporate America? <laughs> You want to, well, we, we have five chapters that must cover everything. But yeah. on, on those, name a couple, Huggy. I, I think uh, the, for us, the biggest sort of suspect, if you will, is what we refer to as addition bias in, in the book, the human tendency to add rather than subtract. And, um, you know, in one recent uh, paper at Nature, which was a review of 20 other studies, it didn't matter what you ask people to do. Hey, build a Lego model, plan a trip, reform a university. You know, about 90% of the suggestions had to do with adding more tasks and about 10 or 11% had to do with subtracting them. So the addition bias is very, very pervasive. And when you combine time poverty with the addition bias, it's kind of like a double whammy. It's hard for employees to choose a more curious and generous version of themselves. How can you be curious when you're besieged by BS? <laughs> I'm well, generous well, too. Yeah, so, so I would add in addition, so this is a, like a psychological property just as I guess those of us who survived the evolutionary forces were people who sort of hoarded stuff. So there's there's some reason. That's what the people who study addition say. But also, if you look how organizations work, uh, the people who will have a lot of people reporting to them, who start new initiatives, who add new software, maybe who hire new consulting firms, uh, those are the people who tend to be rewarded. And the people who don't add stuff in the first place um, or the people who actually subtract stuff because when you subtract stuff, you're almost always taking somebody's pet thing away from them. There's always somebody who who wants that pet program, who wants that pet software, a bit of software, whatever. You're, you're always going to end up hurting someone's feelings when you take things away from them. It's tragedy of the commons. So there's also there's also organizational incentives that that lead that to happen. But that's just one of the causes. Um, one other cause I would say that I think is worth talking about is there's a a bunch of research, and this is also cognitive, that, that when people think about, the, let's take senior leaders, when they put together big organizations, they tend to think about assembling the best people um, and the best teams. Healthcare is especially bad at this, by the way. 
but um, they're not so good at thinking about how the um, pieces fit together. So we talk about a study done by one of my colleagues uh, at the, in, in, in my department, uh, Melissa Valentine, on the cancer tax. So she did a bunch of research that showed that, that at, at um, a, a famous uh, uh, cancer center that it had hired and built all the best departments in the world. But in the process, the senior executive didn't think about how the pieces fit together. So that was left to the patients and their families to navigate how all the pieces fit together. And, that, and that's not just a problem at this one cancer center. It's a problem with all of healthcare, which is sort of a story of fragmentation and friction, especially in the, in the U.S. system. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, I think we can all relate to that. Actually. Yeah, yeah. And if I can add one more, uh, and Bob and I have you know, talked a lot about this, and uh, it's featured in the book too, and that is the obliviousness of senior executives. Uh, Talk uh, about that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, there's like um, one body of research suggests, uh, this is like over 15 years or so, that the more powerful an executive is and the more powerful an executive feels, the less likely they are to search. And so that means you're likely to have tunnel vision. Uh, so that's like one problem. The other big difficulty is one study shows that executives in the C-suites of companies um, they may not know how work gets done three levels beneath. So as a result, they underestimate coordination difficulty that Bob was yeah. just alluding to uh, by as much as 50%. So you think everything is easy. So there's no check, there's no break, and you just are looking at your people always and saying, why didn't you get it done yesterday as opposed to today, you know, and yeah. so yeah. all of that. Well, let's get to what you found actually works. Oh, 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 thank goodness. Yeah. Time for some good news. <laughs> uh, one thing that permeates it is your um, thought that uh, uh, everybody has responsibilities for becoming a friction fixer. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Could you just talk about what that means and what it looks like at the different levels in the company? So what are things uh, one can do in organizations? Uh it seems to us that the first thing is leaders at every level, it doesn't matter whether you're leading a team, whether you're leading a department, a division, or a company. Our suggestion is we ought to act as trustees of other people's time. Because if you don't respect other people's time, you're essentially going to waste it and misallocate it. So start with that kind of recognition. That is like the first thing. The second mental change that we think executives need to undertake at any level is you can think of the team, you can think of the department, division, or company as, it, you know, the internal workings of the company as like a product. Is the organization structure easy to use? Are processes helpful? Do they get in the way? So if you think of the entire organization as a product, that opens up like a bunch of alternatives for you. And so we think that that's kind of where you need to begin. And perhaps the, the place we suggest that one ought to start with is first by removing obstacles that infuriate people. You know, I mean, do you want to talk about this, Bob? We just... Uh, give us a good example. Well, well, well I, 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 my favorite example in the book, then there's, there's lots of examples, and I'm glad Mary's moving us towards optimism because I, I, I won't talk for Huggy, but I started out thinking this problem was insoluble and also that all friction was bad. And uh, by the end of the project, I'm actually reasonably optimistic, and I'm not the most optimistic person in the world. And, uh, and there's also times when friction is good. But if I was going to pick one that infuriated people and did damage, 
and this is it, 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 it kind of goes back about 10 years ago. Perry Claiborne is here, and he keep calling on Perry. So we had this guy in our class. His name was Michael Brennan, and he took off uh, six months to yes. be at Stanford. Um, his, his job, his real job was being head of uh, the United Way in southeastern Michigan. And the first time I met him, and you know, he meets somebody the first time, he gets on his hands and his knees, and he rolls out this form he had in his pocket. What it was, was a 42-page benefits form uh, with a 1,000 questions that was completed by 2.5 million Michiganders a year to get benefits uh, like health insurance, money, food, things like that. And he said, we've got to fix this. This is really terrible. And so, okay, so it's easy to identify problems. So, so what Michael did is he actually uh, hired two other uh, Stanford folks from the Stanford Design School. He went back, started a nonprofit called Sevilla, and he did the hard work. Friction fixing is hard work, prototyping, uh, working with users, working with state government, and to, and to make a, a long story short, um, in, between 2016 and 2018, they came up with a new form, which is 80% shorter. Um, it results in about 75% fewer, uh, fewer mistakes, fewer lobby visits. So they actually improved a form that's filled out by, uh, by uh, 2.5 million Michiganders. And just an on editorial note, I really think that the government in San Francisco could really use somebody like Michael yeah. Brennan. But but to me that that the arc of that story um, show, shows and in, in, in just in talking to Michael he did all the hard work of getting every constituency involved in doing six or seven different prototypes and helping them roll it out his team and and, and that's an, that's that's a really good example and, and yes that was something that sucked but uh, he actually uh, he and his team actually did something about it. yeah I think the thing that inspired both of us are examples of what we refer to in the book as mowing the law. Yeah. Uh, because in companies, people actually eliminate things, but it's kind of like one and done. But you have to do subtraction and the removal of bad friction just as regularly as we mow the lawn. Because if you don't mow the lawn, the weeds are going to outrun it, and then you can't put any new saplings there. And one of the examples that uh, Bob and I love is the story of AstraZeneca. Well, where, you know, well, well. a young a team of 40 people, it's a regulated industry, as you full well know, pharmaceuticals. And the team of 40 people saved the company 2 million hours. And they gave back 2 million hours so the company could serve 4 million more patients and run 400 early phase trials. And the thing that really we were interviewing this, uh, the woman who led this initiative, Pushkala Subramaniam, and we were asking her, was this like an elite managerial endeavor or did it really, was it pervasive throughout the organization? And she gave an example that was to me and uh, Bob too, a very striking. And so she said, people go to work at Astra, work starts at 8 o'clock, everybody shows up at 7.45, you got to swipe your card, there's a bar that goes up and down. And invariably, there was a traffic jam. So people actually started working at half an hour later because of this traffic jam that was created. So after she organizes a World Simplification Day, she turns up at Astra uh, and she realizes there's like no check-in required, nothing. And she asks the security guard who's a contractual employee, hey, what happened to all of that paraphernalia? And he looks at her and says, Madam, you had the World Simplification Day. You want to give everybody the gift of time? I thought I could give all of you half an hour each day. 
I mean, just think of a security guard, which is like astonishing. That that talks about the responsibility up and down. The the responsibility. So, so, I mean, one other thing I think is worth is is worth talking about is. so back to some of these coordination and collaboration issues, one of the reasons that there's friction in organizations that, and this is a little bit more subtle on the coordination um, front, is that um, people don't coordinate in, in part in some organizations because they see other people as enemies. And so you kind of, if you're, if you're going to fix the handoffs and get people to collaborate, you kind of got to start with, well, who's the star? Is it somebody who helps people uh, succeed or is it somebody who squishes them? And uh, I'm, at least the uh, best turnaround I've seen in a large corporation in recent years is what Satya Nadella has done at Microsoft. And he's done a whole, a really smart engineer can tell you about all the engineering changes they've done. And they've been very um, early in open AI and doing a good job with that. But one of the first things that Satya did when he took over as CEO in 2014 is, is that he and the folks at HR got rid of their definition as a superstar under Steve Ballmer to name somebody. Steve Ballmer was smart and hung on to all of his stock, with, which uh, he drove the company to the ground. And Satya um, uh, made a couple billion dollars for um, Ballmer. But anyways, so uh, so there used to be under Steve Ballmer, the superstar was somebody who got ahead by crushing other people. And Satya and Adela, they have they have talking about mowing the lawn in your regular performance evaluation. The question isn't just, are you and your team doing great work, but are you creating a condition where other people can succeed that you're connected to? And I think that the the definition of a superstar to me is a really important measure of whether or not um, cooperation and coordination is happening in an organization where everybody's got the knives out. Yeah. Actually, could you just expand that a little bit? Just talking about the qualities that good friction fixers in general have. What do you think, Huggy? Uh, if I were to summarize it shortly, uh, for me, what good friction fixers do is they multiply curiosity with generosity. They are constantly kind of trying to understand, ask questions. Why is this happening? Why is that happening? And so you notice all these weak signals and you can quickly put them together and identify the problem. And they're generous because what they have is they have a big help muscle, not merely an ask muscle. And I think those two characteristics, uh, you know, in a sense are necessary uh, for friction fixers. Won't you say that, Bob? Yeah, I, I like that. I also, and just knowing a little bit about your leadership style, this definitely applies to you, Mary. Um, I, another thing, that, and, and this is not just uh, friction fixers, but all leaders. I think leaders who are good, are, they're kind of restless. So this is mowing the lawn. Uh, uh, Brad Bird, we interviewed him a long time ago, the Academy Award winning um, director from Pixar. And he talked about relentless restlessness. Yes. That people who who are good at this, it's, it's never, it's, okay, we're doing all right. We're getting better. But but it's never the work is never actually done. So I think that's another thing that I that and, and you know it's kind of exhausting working in places like that. But those are the those are the best leaders in the best workplaces too. You know, but one thing you said was there's um, good friction and bad friction. We haven't really defined that. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. What's the good friction? What's the bad friction? Well, well, if to, I'm not a you know I was a psychology major, so be careful when I define a word like friction. We'll get like a real physicist there. But to us, organizational friction is is when somebody tries to accomplish something and it's slower and maybe more frustrating than they want it to be. And sometimes that's good. 
Um, and sometimes it's bad. And I'll, I'll and there's some things that that should be impossible to do, and some things that should be easy. I'll give a, a great a great example. So doing things that are unlawful or rushing things into the marketplace that aren't ready is probably not a good idea. We use the example of Google Glass. At, and in fact, I got interviewed by a member of the Google Glass team recently. She was kind of giving me grief. Emily Ma, we got interviewed by her last week. Um, but, um, but, but I like the example of Elizabeth Holmes because Elizabeth Holmes is somebody who was very impatient. And uh, to me, my favorite story in, in, uh, in, in uh, the sort of Elizabeth Holmes saga in some ways was she really pressed uh, the U.S. Army to put um, her blood testing device, which did not get FDA approval on uh, U.S. Army helicopters. And even though she had Mad Dog Mattis on her side, some uh, sort of petty bureaucrat stopped her because it didn't have FDA approval. And in contrast, I would point to a startup, which we do talk about in the book. It's, uh, it's called Sequel. It was started by two Stanford grads who graduated, by the way, uh, Greta, Greta Meyer and Amanda Calabrese. In what, in, in, and they took every entrepreneurship class and uh, and what SQL is doing is reinventing the modern uh, tampon. They work they worked on the physics of the thing, and uh, and they just got FDA approval in August. So they didn't drop out, and they got FDA approval. And I think that those are two women who sort of slowed down. And 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 I hope they win in the marketplace. But but there's there, you know, they slowed down so they can hit the gas the gas later. And uh, and to me, there's times there's some things that should be difficult and slow. Including, including friction fixing. If I can just extend uh, and jet ski behind Bob's remarks, friction for us is obstacles. Uh, we think of bad friction as obstacles that infuriate, enrage, and overwhelm people. So that's the bad friction part. Good friction consists of obstacles that, as Bob was mentioning, slow down people, but also educate them and hopefully foster more deliberation. So our job is sort of twofold. Uh, we've got to insert good friction. We've got to take out bad friction. A quick example of good friction uh, is, uh, you know, years ago we had Ben Horowitz uh, come to our class. Andreessen and Horowitz. Yeah, Andreessen Horowitz. Firm. Yeah, and he was describing how their investment committee functions. There are five people. If all five of them agree, they're unlikely to invest in the venture. Because they say if all of us agree, it means somebody else is doing something that we don't know or already has done it. They actually want disagreement because that's an indication of due diligence, uh, uh, you know. And the other thing is they feel that uh, innovative ideas uh, are by definition controversial and that ought to be reflected yes. in the voting pattern. That's, so That's actually the power of diversity, Jim. The power of, yeah. that is, so, so I would also, one of my favorite almost – if 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 you said what's one example that almost defines the spirit of the book is we're interested in situations where uh, good friction gets rid of bad friction yes and and a really simple example i think you're having him as a guest in your class soon yes. Um, so some of us may remember uh, Laszlo Bach was head of people operations, which is essentially head of HR at Google for about eight or 10 years. And when he got to Google, there was a tradition, which was actually a great idea in the early days, which which and Larry and Sergey started this that because uh, they wanted to scale the company with a really great 
people who fit really well. They do 8, 12, 15. And, and when I first put this in the Wall Street Journal, um, Laszlo fact-checked me. I said, is 8, 12, 15? He said, well, once it was 25 job interviews before um, deciding whether or not to give somebody an offer. So, I mean, and just do the math about how much friction that is, how many you have to schedule, how many, how many candidates that you piss off when we're going to Facebook in those days. And, and so he came up with a simple rule. And the simple rule was, if you are going to do more than um, four job interviews, you have to get written permission from me. So, he, so, so people say authority is bad, rules are bad. Well, I think in this case, authority and rules were actually good. Absolutely. So, so that, but the reason I like that example is it's using good friction to get rid of bad friction that's systemic. You know, another example that really struck me in the book uh, of the use of slowing down mm. was uh, the Roman Haas uh, executive who mm. realized he needed to do certain – going fast for many things was good, but there were certain things that he needed to go slow. Could you talk about that? Well, well, well in, 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 I mean, so, so that's when it comes to important strategic decisions. And, and uh, I mean, one of the distinctions there, and maybe you can extend on this a little bit, um, is – you know, Jeff Bezos, he's kind of annoys me sometimes, but he's done some pretty good stuff. And he talked to, he talks about the difference between one way and two way doors. And if you're going to make a decision that's reversible, then that's a situation where, eh, you know, if it's reversible, if it's cheap, it's not going to threaten the company. It's not going to kill anybody. Then you can just do a prototype and experiment. But um, so if it's a two way door, but if it's, if it's something that's not reversible, like selling your company, doing a huge merger, um, Firing the CEO, as we found out with Sam Altman, I thought that was absolutely one of the most interesting decisions I've ever saw because uh, the board thought that it was a one-way door for um, um, for Sam Altman, but it actually turned out to be a two-way door for him and a one-way door for them. <laughs> so, so I thought that was one of the more interesting decisions that 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 I've seen. But but I think this notion of it kind of depends on the nature of the decision that you're talking about, and and in that case, they were talking about strategic decisions. Yeah. You want to hop on this? Yeah, I mean, the, about the slowing down, yeah. uh, since you're, of course, a legal luminary, I thought you might find this study interesting, Mary. We'd asked one of our graduate students, hey, take a look at all the barrier startups, uh, use a large language model, tell us, after looking at all the public filings and vision and mission and whatever, how much do they linguistically emphasize speed? So she came up with the number, and I said, great, now that we know the number, why don't you tell us how does that affect or predict the speed at which you receive a unicorn valuation? And what did she find? The more you emphasize speed, the faster, the shorter the time taken to be a unicorn, you're getting a $1 billion valuation. So she was overjoyed. And we said, wait a minute, do one more analysis. Show us the relationship between the time taken to be a unicorn and the probability of being barraged by lawsuits two years down the line. And what do you find? The faster you became a unicorn, the more likely you're going to be the target of lawsuits and the like. But then you can afford all those expensive lawyers too, right? <laughs> lawyers love this. You know. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> so you talked a little bit about... Uh, uh, the obliviousness of leaders and how that can impact an organization. Wherever you are in the organization, many people are leading someone. So could you just talk a little bit more about the bad obliviousness? And uh, it sounded to me from reading the book that a lot of it is kind of self-awareness of the human being. And maybe you can... Well, well, well so we... It's especially a problem for people in power 
because I, so there's this, I, I, I lo- there's a lovely definition of privilege is that, is that when you're, um, have a lot of power, one of the things that comes with it is the absence of inconvenience that the little people have to suffer from. And so, so one of the reasons, in addition to the fact that just having power is not good for one's mind, you've got to be careful of it, is, is that when people get in powerful positions, there's all sorts of hassles they don't have to go through. And, and, and my favorite example is uh, what happened to me when I had a problem with Comcast. Uh, my my mother had uh, had passed away, and I had all this complication with 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 uh, getting just her service sort of disconnected, but not completely. And I, it was a classic thing. I went through. They have the worst phone tree ever. I, if you ever try their phone tree, bless you. Um, so I went to the phone tree, and they'd make mistakes. They had problems anyway. So I did the crass thing of complaining on Twitter. And I know a board member, and a board member wrote me, and he was very concerned. I was upset and complaining about um, about his company. So I got what I call the white privilege or VIP line. So they just sent me this phone number. I called, and then two rings, some group in Arizona answered, and everything was was um, fixed immediately. And I also didn't even have to pay any fees that the little people had to pay. Even they just and somebody came to my house for no charge and all this sort of stuff. And and so to me, my first reaction was, oh, this feels really good. I don't have to suffer the little people. But my other reaction was, so I suspect all the senior executives have this, and they don't have to go through the, the darn phone tree that I have to go. So so that's one of the reasons that uh, that those problems don't get fixed is because literally when people in senior executive positions are protected from the inconveniences that the rest of the people, including their customers and regular employees have, that's something that makes me nervous. Yeah. How many little people do we have? In yeah, yeah well, well, we're all little people. Somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that's, right. so. that's a great story. Um, so uh, in the, are there cultural differences around the globe that make this different? Or is it pretty much the same in Europe, Asia, and the United States? Ooh. What do you think, Huggy? Uh, I would say uh, this problem of friction is really pervasive throughout the world. Uh, it manifests itself in different ways. Um, and you can see these problems of friction. Uh, they actually come to life when the cross-border mergers. Uh, you know, a, com- com- yeah. a, com- a company in country A buys a, a company in country B, and you can actually see all of the difficulties. One of the funniest stories we ever heard about this friction was Walmart going to Germany, uh, where what they did was they actually trained uh, the German staff in the ethic of customer service that normally everybody in America is trained in. So... um, so when they did this, a lot of the women employees also went through training. But apparently when they smiled and welcomed people and so on and so forth in a Walmart store, male Germans quoted this as a very different kind of signal, which <laughs> led to comic encounters, as you can imagine, in the Walmart store. So this is like a simple thing of like being completely oblivious as to, you know, what happens there. Or another company, um, Carrefour, going from France to Japan. And so Japanese customers go there thinking they're going to find things that in Carrefour that you get in France, only to find that you get the same things you get in any Japanese store. Why would you go to Carrefour? So these are all examples of, if you will, People unwittingly creating friction and stumbling over things. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, that's so I, I, 
I'm not sure anybody's asked us this yet. So, so one thing this does occur to me, so we talk in the book about the notion that labor leads to love, and, yes. and this is called the Ikea effect. So academics will do the stuff where they'll either say, how much would you pay for this box? And, and, and whether or not you assemble it has a big effect. That's why I call it the Ikea effect. People will pay more money for a box that they've assembled. Um, and, um, and when Ikea um, moved to China was an interesting effect because in the United States and other countries where it's more sort of do-it-yourself culture, they ended up making some changes, including having more assembly and more delivery services than the United States to deal with the cultural differences. So so for a couple of years, since this is in our last book on um, scaling up excellence, I would um, talk to audiences about the IKEA differences in, uh, in China versus the United States until I spoke to a group of 50 um, Chinese executives to so say they're all with a simultaneous translation and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so this, this guy raises his hand, and this is to the translator, and, and he says... Uh, he says, I don't assemble anything, but I do assemble IKEA stuff and they've trained us. So it's a it's a case where where the the culture of the of you know the, the, the do-it-yourself culture has from IKEA has actually moved, at least according to this group in China. And I knew they'd actually done it because one of the guys said in English, not good for your relationship with your spouse. You know, he's really done it. <laughs> so that's amazing. So that, but I thought that was that was a pretty interesting example of uh, of, of of a cross cultural fact that uh, that they, that they did try to um, you know make some adjustments, but then they also educated too. That's really interesting. Could you talk a little bit more about this labor uh, creating love and how? Well, well so, so this is and so this every fraternity, every sorority, every cult. Um, they all know this. Um, every army boot camp is that there's all sorts of evidence by academics uh, that the more you work towards something, um, the more you suffer, the more you will value it independently of its objective value. And, the, the, and, and this idea about um, effort justification is sort of the, you know, I work so hard, this must be really important. Um, so that's one of the reasons that people don't quit things they should, they should quit. And it's also, uh, and, and, and there's also another angle to this. So that's the psychological commitment part of it. There's also a bunch of evidence, and this is another argument for good friction that isn't just sort of like the more time you waste, the more important you think it is. There's a whole bunch of studies that show that, uh, that the more people have worked together, uh, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett would be sort of exhibit A. The more people have worked together, the more effective that, that they are. So, I mean, just even for example, there's, there's some interesting evidence that when uh, people have done uh, group projects together um, as students, they're more likely to have successful startups. And that goes back to Hewlett and Packard and Larry and Sergey and on and on, Instagram guys. So, so this idea that, you know, you can't hurry love, labor learns to love. It also is a mutual understanding yeah. and trust thing. Yeah, definitely. I've gotten a couple of really interesting questions from the uh, audience. This one intrigues me. Can you address institutional friction as it applies to the Congress? And uh, is oh, oh, you can have that one, Huggy. Oh my! God. <laughs> if, if not, I'm going to do a cold call on the audience. Come on, Huggy. Dude. Who are you going to insult? <laughs> I really have to restrain myself. Thank here. you. <laughs> and I have to really summon my rational self, otherwise. Oh, I'll fall similar. apart. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to do that. That is actually a really good question. But when we really look at Congress, it seems to me um, that what Congress is very good at doing is allocating gains. 
You know, you want an airbase in Nevada? Great. You want one in Mississippi? Great. There's no resource constraint. But what Congress is terrible at is allocating losses. Who's going to close down their airbase, you know? Um, and that's where they kind of get immobilized. And the problem, of course, these days in Congress is in addition to this inability to allocate losses is actually the existence of prejudice. And once you have prejudice where the other person is the enemy, as Bob yes. mentioned, and they have a symmetrical uh, reaction to you, it's kind of very hard to sort of get anything done. And it's uh, it's uh, disappointing, it's uh, frustrating. And you can see all of this happening in the way, uh, you know, we, we managed to... You know, we haven't passed a budget yet, and they do all these stopgap measures to kind of make sure that the government is kind of functioning. So uh, it's, a, you know, it's a place where one ought to really carefully think of what is it we need to include there so that they can make better decisions allocating losses. We need to look at friction fixing capabilities. Well, Hagen, that was such a rational answer. Congratulations. Thank you so very much. <laughs> I have to tell you, otherwise, the person kind of appearing, looming large in my mind was James Comer of Kentucky, and I didn't want to pursue. Okay, okay, that's good. Thank you. So um, between the two of you, have you had friction between the two of you, and how do you deal with it? Uh, well, yeah, of course. Be, and and uh, that, I can't believe we're being asked this question. But so The audience wants to know. So, so, so Mary knows me very well and uh and and she knows my wife very well and uh and in in my relation with my wife marina um, i really i don't need to be the adult in the relationship and um with huggy um, that's true I, yeah since you've worked with marina for years um so but with huggy i have to be the adult in the relationship and this is one of the only relationships i've had as an adult where i have except like you know, with students and stuff but really marina and i are in awe that, that i have to be the yeah. adult so like i i so I, I I nag him. Um, I think I've yelled at you twice in the course of the project, which isn't really that much, given how uh, you know, given how I am and how. Anyways, but but so so that's I think the source of the friction is that is that I have to be the adult in the relationship. And one thing I will say to Huggy's credit is it never seems to bother him when I nag him, which I don't really understand. Would drive if he nagged me as much as I nag him, it would drive me nuts. So I don't know whether that's an accurate description, but it, it, but but I I just can't believe I have to be the adult in this relationship. <laughs> Huggy, your defense. <laughs> well, um, the thing is, Bob clearly is the more gifted writer of the both. Uh, no, he really is. You know, oh, he's an extraordinary writer, and he's also very exacting. So there have been occasions where we've spent three hours debating four words in which yeah, order they sure. ought to go in. And I'm like, you know, do we really need to do this? And no, he's very insistent. And he's actually right, you know, more often than... That's good friction. Exactly. Well, well the other thing that poor Huggy had is... That, so we. So one thing that's very important, and we, we even have this notion that the best friction fixers, we could have said this, are um, our editors, they think like editors-in-chief which is what should be hard, what should be easy, um, how can we move things around. And so we had this editor. This guy's name is, is Tim Bartlett. Yes. He is such a good editor. And the other thing I love about Tim, and, and Huggy thought we were nuts, Tim and I can spend two hours working on two sentences and be so happy. And Huggy just 
thinks we're just okay. If you boys want to do that, that's fine. But but uh, but so that's like that was another emails being and, and 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 the thing about Tim is he gets he doesn't even. Get, he gets he gets exhausted. It takes him longer than me. So I just love working with him. And he, so so the book he's probably most famous for that you've you've all heard of is a radical candor. So he worked he, he's worked with uh, with Kim Scott. And there's a crazy book by Safi Bacall that's called Loon Shots. Uh, is is another book he edited. But Tim mostly has not done management books. He's done history. He's done politics. He he accidentally uh, sort of fell into management books when he did Radical Candor with Kim Scott. But uh, but he was he's such a good editor. I I just love him. Well, it takes a team. It take yeah, yeah. it does. It, it 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 does. It takes a village. It's true. It, it looked it's a, there's two authors on the title, but uh, it takes a lot of people. You know, I got a question from the audience about. Um, from somebody who says uh, there's a lot of fear-based decision-making in my organization. Uh, and what if I make a mistake? What does this change mean for me, et cetera? Uh, how can middle managers help this fear base in the middle of the organization to get rid of some of the friction? You got the answer? Well, I'll try. Well, the, the way I sort of would like to kind of respond to that question, Mary, is that the metaphor that crosses my mind is people are actually in a room called fear. And what we need to do is we need to take them to a room called confidence. And so you can't just walk out of the room called fear and immediately go to the room called confidence. You actually need like a psychological passageway or a corridor. And what effective leaders do is they figure out what that psychological passageway is, what actually that corridor is. And so you can actually reduce a lot of fear because quite a bit of the fear may be imagined. And a lot also depends on how you frame the problem. You can frame the problem in an accusatory way and say somebody is to blame for it. Or you can frame the problem as, hey, this is actually what the customer is saying. And it seems to me that the lower down in the organization you are, my hypothesis would be that your best ally would be the customer to help you cross the corridor and get to the room called confidence, and hopefully you can carry other people too. Now, one of the simplest ways in which you can reduce fear is even for leaders of teams and so forth is to have what's called an upside down town hall meeting where instead of the boss kind of yammering, you actually rely on questions from the audience and the questions can be anonymously sourced. You don't need to identify an individual. But what's most crucial is once you've identified a question, you've got to take action and show that you take them seriously. Otherwise, the supply of questions is going to dwindle. So I, I like that answer. I, I would I would also add, and, and this does vary from organization to organization, but, but we tend to just say an organization, I don't know, like Microsoft, Walmart, sort of pick whatever, um, Stanford University, pick whatever you want. We tend to think of it as from the outside, especially as being sort of a unified whole. But, but Gallup, and they've had data like this for years, mm-hmm. that, that shows that, that actually um, the overall culture of the organization, so let's take psychological safety or fear, um, is actually not a very strong predictor of uh, of whether or not you feel psychologically safe 
or, or you're in the room called fear, as Huggy would say, what really matters the most is the next person up the, the hierarchy, the boss. And, and, and they've got all sorts of studies that show that, uh, that the, the, for example, the overall quality of engagement in an organization uh, it's it varies so much. It doesn't matter what organization you're in. It matters more than what your boss is. So the 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 um, rest, what do you call it? The recommendation that comes out of that is that developing high quality, especially first line leaders in organization, is 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 what really matters. So so anybody who's got anybody reporting to them can really have a big effect on whether people feel fear or not. If you if you look and Gallup's been. They got fifty years of data on this. And if data. you're reporting to a jerk, vote with your feet. Wow! Well, if you're it's if you if you're reporting to a jerk, it's uh, it's exit voice or loyalty. You you quit. Uh, you shut up because because you can't find another job, or you just put up with it, or you go to war against them. You kind of got to decide which of the three. Yeah. Do you have good examples where bureaucracy, the uh, friction, was moved in a positive direction by people from the middle taking taking it on? The AstraZeneca example is one, but let me give you another example, Mary. We're trying to write the case study on the DMV. Bob. Yeah, we're, we're in early conversations with the, D, the California Department of Motor Vehicles leadership. And a lot of what they're doing hinges really on middle management and lower management. Wouldn't you say that? Yeah. Uh, because Steve Gordon, the outsider who actually came in, wanted to change the organization. And effectively, the way we see it is, this is an ossified bureaucracy where one would, you know, most people say DMV, you know, we think of the words awful and this and that. It's everybody's private version of hell. If that's what we think, can you imagine the employees at the DMV? How hard, I mean, who would give a card saying, hey, I work for the California DMV? I mean, most people wouldn't, I would submit. But what the, this founder, this leader is doing is really refounding the organization and instilling pride in middle managers to go and do things. You should tell them about the lovely example of going yeah, yeah, so, for your at mom. the beginning. Give us your example. Well, so, so, so my example of the DMV, and, and, by, and by the way, we we just started talking to this guy, Steve Gordon, and his team about three or four weeks ago. We may actually do a case, and they're doing a lot of technological solutions too. But my experience was I went to the DMV, and I thought I got there at 730 in the morning and basically allocated my whole morning. And this this is in Redwood City. And this amazing person – and there were 60 people in line in front of me. And this amazing person walked out at 740, and he walked down the line and asked each of us why we were there. And some of us, he gave forms. One person was there to get a passport, which you can't do at the DMV. So that person was sent home. And and he, so he gave me my form to fill out. And he told me what window to go to first. And I was out of there by 820. And I couldn't believe that one of the best experiences that I had was the 45 minutes I spent at the California DMV. And in part, it was because he had somebody doing triage to help us through the system. And And... And and Steve said that's the kind of both culture and process they're trying to instill in their branches. And they're not perfect. They they make mistakes, but then so does every bureaucracy. And and then one thing that he did talk about is real the real ID, which uh which almost all of us are gonna have to do. They keep pushing back the 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 deadline, is and that's something that they have to get a wet signature. So you do have to go to the DMV and uh they unless they're trying to change that law too, but they've changed that so that it, it used to take twenty eight minutes of the DMV. DMV, and now it takes an average of eight minutes. 
So that to me is is a sign. That's friction fixing. Absolutely. And uh, and so that would be an example. And and we're trying to learn more about them. But from what we're learning, I'm impressed by what they're trying to do and what they're doing. Did you actually ask the guy that was helping you why he was doing it? Did oh no, he was too busy. We 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 asked Steve Gordon though, and, and and he said that's one of the things we're trying to do. And and he did say essentially this is one of the solutions that we talk about in the book that's in between organizational design and just trying to make people feel better. Sometimes in complex bureaucracies, uh, some there's people who kind of act as tour guides, mm. and those are the people who tell you what steps to take. And the other thing they tell you to do. And and we, we have some people at Stanford who are wonderful at this, is they tell you which people to avoid and which people to ask for help. Because we all know that there's some people, if you go to them and you ask and you give them a problem, they make it complicated. They try to make you suffer as much as possible. And there's other people who actually want to help you. And to me, that's... That's that's sort of like a, another element of friction fixing, which is in between changing the organizational design and just giving people uh, and just giving people therapy about the situation that they're in. What's the state of play on? Let's say you're the boss of a fairly large organization. How do you identify the the people who smooth things along and those that are part of the sludge? Is there a way to actually see that clearly? Well, at Stanford, we just ask the students. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm serious. We I. I in, in our department, we ask people like who makes your life miserable and who helps you. I mean, in, in the, the classic person, and I bet many of you have in your organization, is the person who approves expenses. And I, I've never understood this. There are some people who approve ex- expenses who they want to say yes. They don't want you to break the rules. And there's other people who just want to make you suffer. And I, and I, so I think gossip is another thing because we all know who those yeah. people are. You just stay away from them. Yeah. And maybe they're not very busy. Maybe that's why when you go to see them, they make you suffer so much. True enough. Uh, one question I got here is interesting. Uh, is there a CEO or executive that you would like to interview to gain more insight? Because you're kind of watching them from the outside. What do you think? I think uh, there are a number of CEOs, at least I'd love to learn more from. And uh, when I think of this range of CEOs, and one, we've already talked to him, Shantanu from Adobe, you know. Shantanu Narayan yeah. from Adobe is interesting. You know, because uh, they've actually undertaken a bunch of changes. Another person to actually talk to is the CEO of Walmart. You're going there to give a talk at uh, uh, Walmart. And one of the interesting things the companies like Walmart, if not Walmart, are trying to do is they're actually using AI to identify sources of friction and make life better for people. I can't name the company because we haven't nailed down the case study idea yet. But in this company, they're actually in the networking space. And what do they do? They actually used AI to comb through 1.2 billion log files, which no human being can wade through. And I was asking them, what's the result of your AI effort? And the guy looks at me and he says, the best outcome is our network engineers, they're not woken up at night. They can sleep throughout the night. They don't have sleep debt. But another person I'd really like to learn from would be um, this young woman called Malala. You know, she's a remarkable person. Think of all the things she's doing the world over. I would really like to uh, um, learn a lot from her. Another person we could, I would love to interview about creating good friction would be Greta Thunberg. Yeah. Uh, a young, so when, when I think of like, so when you said CEOs, I'm kind of more thinking of founder activist yeah. as a yeah. category, Mary. Yeah. 
So, young people. Young people, I think that's right. So Satya Nadella, um, I already mentioned him. The, the person in, in, in I, I did interview him a couple of times. The most interesting person, at least I thought that I interviewed in, in terms of like, just going, oh, this is really exciting. There, there's a guy named Todd Park. Todd Park is most famous for when he was a CTO in the Obama administration for leading the process that fixed the Obamacare website. Some of you may remember it was so broken, you'd click and there'd be eight second delay if it didn't crash. And he brought together the nerds from Silicon Valley and uh, and the longtime contractors to actually fix it. Um, so he's famous for that. And he's going to be a guest in your class in a couple of weeks. I, I'm going to miss it. Um, so when we interviewed him, uh, so I talked to a lot of executives. So this is a guy, he's a kind of a famous software guy. He started Athena Health with his brother and everything. So the first five minutes he talked about love. And, and I'm not used to CEOs talk about love. And so he and his brother, Ed, have started a uh, company. It's, it's in, I think, 17 states. You'll find it, Devoted Health. And what Devoted Health is, for people like me over 65, it's to kind of give you one point of interaction with the health, the fragmented healthcare system. Um, and so he said, our, he's really good at logistics. He understands software really well. But he said, our philosophy is that we uh, train and socialize and reward people so that, uh, so that that point of contact, that one point of contact you have with devoted health is you should treat the patient or the customer just like your mother or father. You should treat, it like, treat them like somebody you love and what kind of experience would somebody you love want to have. And, and, and if he was here, he just sort of vibrates with this kind of positive energy. And, um, and, and so, so that was one of the most, I think that was the most, and it was very late in the, very late in the process. And he was one of the most exciting CEOs that, um, that I met. And if he can reduce friction for those of us dealing with the American healthcare system, he, he really will have done something. That's it's, true. That, that is a huge problem. Yeah. It, 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 I, I just can't believe how difficult it is to yeah. deal with it. That's cool. Um, good question here. Any tips for dealing with intergenerational friction as in the older or the younger workforce? Ooh. So um, one example that quickly flashed through my mind as soon as I heard the question is this idea of reverse mentoring in companies. I actually was at an Indian company, and he's a Stanford alum. And he said, Huggy, I want you to meet my mentor. And he's the CEO of the company. He was actually a young engineer. And he was saying, I found I was asking my son, who was too busy. <laughs> I have young engineers, they can educate me. One simple way in which we could get that jump start. That's cool. That's a very good thought. Um, Excuse me. So, I mean, one of the things that, that we do, it's interesting, I, I'm thinking of some of the stuff that works in class with Stanford students, is that, uh, is that we actually say things to them, well, if you were president of Stanford for a, a week, what would you do? We also um, have them talk about stupid stuff at Stanford, so I think that's some of the stuff that that you can you can do. But the the intergenerational stuff is 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 actually often tough. Um, but just one thing about it, I think that is worth saying, is there's all of this stuff that always comes out that whatever the new generation is, it's like X Y Z sort of pick one that there's never been like one quite like them that is is lazy or parties or pick whatever derogatory thing you want to say. But at least my friends who um, are real demographers and have been studying this for a long time, they will tell you that there has always been tension between old people and young people because they have different demands on them. And this, this is not new. 
Um, it happened with baby boomers. It happened. It, it, it's happened with every generation. So, so there isn't anything necessarily distinct about the new generation of youngins who just don't get it. And at least my generation, you talk about people like party and, and being irresponsible. Like we were the worst from what I can tell. Um, so we were not better. Um, so, uh, so, so a lot of the intergenerational stuff is just structural. It's a difference between, um, how younger, younger people and older people sort of process things. That's certainly true, Bob. As I listened to you, one of the areas I was thinking was where there is actually a difference is employee activism. Uh, huh. Younger people are way more activist. I mean, companies can't sell these products. You can't do this. You can't do that. And a lot of CEOs and leaders, they're kind of completely unprepared for such employee activism on the part of young people. And the other thing with young people is they don't actually think conversations in the company are confined to the company. They tweet about it. They write about it on LinkedIn. So... Uh, so the entire firm is really like a conversation. So all of that is certainly harder for senior executives who belong. Well, well think, some firms, Apple still just fires people. I mean, Apple's got better security than the CIA, which I think kind of helps them. I'm not saying that either. I love that line. I, I, I don't know anybody at Apple who tweets wildly or they, they, you just don't. Yeah, they'd be they, they work there for 10 minutes and then they're gone. True enough. <laughs> so in doing this research for your book, what was the thing that most surprised or shocked you? Ooh, oh, it must be a hard question. So, well, so, so, so the the thing that I, if I would pick one, well, I would pick two things. One is that I actually got more optimistic throughout, and and then the other thing that surprised me is that I sort of started out with this view that uh, everything that's difficult and slow, it's just somebody who is stupid and getting in the way. And and one thing that um, I did um, get interested in, in, in surprised me was that something should be slow. And it was a surprise, but it's something that even since the book uh, came out, I've gotten more and more into this notion. There's a really cool academic uh, research on savoring. So so there's coping. So bad things happen in your life and you try to minimize how much they upset you, sort of do the cognitive behavioral therapy thing. But there's a there's a sort of a counterpoint research, which is savoring, which is the good things in life. They should be slow. They should be enjoyable. You should sort of linger over them. So it's sort of uh, like rushing through like a three star Michelin meal would be bad. And my favorite example, and we just had this fact check. So this is brand new. And it's in the book is, is that uh, the largest grocery store chain in um, the Netherlands and Holland, it's called Jumbo. And they experimented with slow lanes and, and so, like slow lanes to go to the grocery store. I just want to get in and out. And and so they have some efforts in, in Holland uh, to help lonely people, especially lonely older people. So these are chat lanes where you get in to have a nice little conversation with the clerk. And this was fact checked two weeks ago, and it's it's now spread by the end of 2023 to about 200 jumbo grocery stores. And that honestly, the concept of going to a grocery store for a slow lane, I just couldn't believe it. But but then when you think about savoring, it sort of makes sense. Yeah, yeah, Huggy. Yeah. For me, the biggest surprise actually was about myself. I mean, you write a book and you learn things about yourself that kind of startled me. Uh, my wiser half uh, uh, is actually here in the audience, and I'm sure she might correct me later. But, uh, you know, I always thought of my job as of a professor, as, as I mentioned earlier, also pertaining to curiosity and generosity. But as I was writing the book, I kind of realized that one of the things I was doing and I was blind to was I was parking curiosity at work. 
and I just wasn't being curious enough at home. And I think that's, uh, fortunately, my wiser half is better than me uh, <laughs> in helping me make this transition. So now, uh, you know, cooking becomes an adventure, less of a chore. And, uh, you know, one of the things we've kind of done, and this is something I'd recommend to everybody is, uh, you know, get an old-fashioned atlas, spread it out, close your eyes, take your right index finger, stick it someplace randomly, look at where you stuck your finger, and cook a meal from there. It's fantastic. <laughs> uh, you know, we did that actually once with Indonesia, and uh, it was unbelievable. I mean, we never cooked anything from West Sumatra, and then we cooked a meal. But then what happened to me was, Completely unplanned. I spent, I think, two weeks learning about the maritime empires of Indonesia, about which I was completely ignorant. That is cool. And uh, on that high note, because we have <laughs> run out of time, I think it's a very good place to end this conversation, truly with a note of hope, for sure. Um, I just want to express our thanks to Bob Sutton and Huggy Rao, co-authors of The Friction Project, How Smart Leaders Make the Right Things Easier and the Wrong Things Harder. And we encourage you to pick up a copy of The Friction Project here or at your local bookstore, or you can download it to your Kindle. And um, if you'd like to support the club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit our website at www.commonwealthclub.org. And I'm Mary Cranston. I want to thank you, and I wish all of you a wonderful evening and take care. Thank you for interviewing us, Mary. Thank Thank you you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.